You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Welcome back to the show. This week, we are putting on our detective hats, so to speak, as our story revolves around a person who wasn't necessarily a major historical figure, but led a rather ordinary life. As is often the case with women living in the 18th and 19th centuries, we don't have a lot of primary source material related to her life. You know the saying, well-behaved women seldom make history? Well, that's the case here. Most people will interpret this quote to mean that women, in order to change the world and make a splash in the historical record, needed to be bold, improper, or to have misbehaved in some way. But this quote is actually a statement of fact pertaining to the historical record itself. The quiet, ordinary lives that make up the bulk of people's experiences rarely get written down, precisely because they were so, well, ordinary. Our subject today might not have seen herself as particularly remarkable. She lived a typical life in the Georgian-era upper class, apart from one small aspect of her identity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If you're new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I'll let you know what that's going to be this week in just a minute, so you can pull it up on Google if you want. I will also post this week's artwork over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. Look for the post labeled episode three. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time the next time you listen. So our painting this week is titled Dido Elizabeth Bell and Lady Elizabeth Murray, and it's painted by David Martin. This piece is a double portrait featuring a black woman on the left and a white woman on the right. We're going to direct our focus mainly towards just one of the subjects, the black woman who can be seen in motion on the left side of the canvas. Her name is Dido Elizabeth Bell, and this is the only known portrait we have of her. The woman seated to her right is her cousin, the Lady Elizabeth Murray. They grew up together in the late 1700s at Kenwood House in London. We'll talk more about them and their relationship in a little bit, but for now, let's just see what the painting itself can tell us. 
The artist seems to be portraying a moment in time here. It looks as though Dido is passing by her seated cousin, and Elizabeth is reaching out a hand to catch her, trying to get her to slow down or stop for a moment. Elizabeth on the right wears a pink silk and lace gown, a garland of roses in her hair, and a double strand of pearls around her neck. She smiles sweetly out of the canvas, her flushed cheeks contrasting against her bright white skin. On her lap rests an open book, held in her right hand. With her other hand, she grasps Dido's left elbow, which is clothed in a silvery white silk gown. Dido also sports a turban, decorated with tiny gold stars and accented with a single black ostrich feather. She wears a single strand of pearls, matching earrings, and a transparent blue shawl which trails behind her, giving her even more of a sense of motion. She holds a basket of tropical fruit in her left hand. Dido's right hand points to her cheek, either drawing our attention to her dark skin or gesturing to a smile that comes off just a bit more mischievous than her cousin's. But like her cousin, Dido also gazes directly out at the viewer so that we are able to meet her eyes. This painting is unusual for a number of reasons, most of them having to do with the relationship between the two girls. They each sport a number of similar attributes, including their luxurious silk gowns, expensive pearl jewelry, and that direct, confident gaze. The painter has also placed them on the same level. Even though Elizabeth is seated and Dido is standing, neither girl rises any higher visually than the other. This is unique in British art of the 18th century, as it depicts a black woman and a white woman as near equals. Portrayals of people of color at all are few and far between in 18th century portraiture, and where they do exist, it is typically in the form of an unnamed servile figure acting as a, quote, accessory to the white figure. They are usually hovering on the margins of the painting. Rarely are we supposed to focus on the black bodies in such portraits, as they are mainly included to suggest the main sitter's wealth and status. The painter of Dido and Elizabeth isn't doing that, but he still does suggest subtle differences between the girls. Dido's animation, for example, contrasts with Elizabeth's sense of stillness, and we can also compare Dido's turban, silk wrapper, and the exotic fruit she carries to Elizabeth's much more English rose garland and book. It's possible that these details indicate differences in character rather than differences in status. Is Dido, for instance, pointing to her cheek to point out her different skin color, or is it more of a playful gesture? Is she holding the fruit to suggest something about her interests or her tastes? That we might never know. The background of the painting shows us a quintessential British countryside, rolling hills, a waterway, a bridge, but on the horizon is a view of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. This tiny detail lets us know that the scene is set at the stately home of Kenwood House, which sits on Hampstead Heath in the northern part of London. Hampstead Heath is one of the highest points in London, and to this day it consists of wide open parkland, ponds, and recreational areas. The Kenwood estate occupies 120 acres at the top of the heath, where it sits amidst lush, sprawling gardens, and it has a great protected view of St. Paul's Cathedral, six miles away in the city center. A close look at this painting raises more questions than it answers, doesn't it? Who were these women? What was their relationship like? And how did they, a black woman and a white woman, come to be sitting together as equals on the terrace of an English stately home in the early 1780s at the height of the transatlantic slave trade? 
Sadly, as I mentioned, we don't have much in the way of primary source material from either Dido or her cousin Elizabeth. We do have official records and a few accounts from people who knew them, but an examination of Dido's life, which we are about to embark upon, must also rely heavily on an historian's ability to place the few facts that we do have into the larger context of the time in which she lived. So that is what we are going to attempt to do for the rest of the episode. Both Lady Elizabeth and Dido were brought to Kenwood House by their fathers to be placed in the care of its owners, William Murray, the first Earl of Mansfield, and his wife, Elizabeth Murray, the Countess of Mansfield. I'm going to refer to their mutual guardian, the Earl, as Lord Mansfield for simplicity throughout the episode. Lord Mansfield and his wife were childless, and so when they were first asked to care for their great-niece, Lady Elizabeth, it's possible that they saw this as their opportunity to form a family. Lady Elizabeth Murray had been born in Warsaw, Poland in 1760. She was the daughter of David Murray, who was Lord Mansfield's nephew, his brother's son, and therefore was also his heir, the future second Earl of Mansfield. David's wife, Elizabeth's mother, had died when Elizabeth was just six years old. It's not clear exactly why Lady Elizabeth was placed in Lord Mansfield's household, especially since her father would later remarry and have five additional children with his second wife. David Murray was ambassador to Vienna and Warsaw and later to France, though, so it's possible that he just didn't feel that he should cart a young girl around with him while he was working in those roles. And it was by no means unheard of for a powerful aristocrat to become the legal guardian to an orphaned relation, especially one who was related to his heir. A few years later, the Mansfields would also take charge of their other great-niece, Dido, but in 1766, when Lady Elizabeth arrived at their home, she had not yet met her cousin. Dido would have just recently arrived in England herself. Their paths will cross in our story soon enough, but first, let's back up to the circumstances surrounding Dido's birth. Dido was born into slavery in the British West Indies in June 1761. We don't know this date because a record was made at her birth, but rather because of records made later when she was baptized in England. So we are really relying on secondhand information even for something as simple as her birth year. Her name comes from the Greek, meaning either virgin or wanderer. Dido's mother was an enslaved African woman known as Mariah Bell. Her name was spelled as B-E-L-L in early records, but later in Mariah's life, her circumstances would change and an E would be added to the end, kind of poshing it up a bit. More on that later. Dido's father was the 24-year-old naval officer John Lindsay. To place him in our story, Lindsay was Lord Mansfield's nephew. His mother, Amelia Murray, was the Earl's sister. His father was a Scottish baronet. Lindsay joined the Royal Navy during the Seven Years' War, a global conflict that took place from 1756 to 1763 between Britain, France, and their allies. During that time, Lindsay was captain of the British warship HMS Trent, a 28-gun frigate. Aboard the Trent, Lindsay had seen action in Spain in 1759 and at the Siege of Quebec later that same year. He arrived in Jamaica in the summer of 1760 aboard the HMS Trent. During September of that year, he sailed the Trent to patrol off the coast of Senegal, a country in West Africa, and returned back to Jamaica at the end of the year. Dido, if she was born in 1761, must have been conceived around that time. However, there are also conflicting contemporary accounts related to Dido's birth as well. 
Thomas Hutchinson, a friend of Lord Mansfield's, a former governor of Massachusetts, recorded the version of the story of Dido's birth that was related to him by saying, Sir Lindsay, having taken her mother prisoner in a Spanish vessel, brought her to England, where she was delivered of this girl, of which she was then with child. This account for a long time led many historians to believe that Dido's mother, Mariah, was an enslaved woman on board one of the Spanish ships that were captured during the Siege of Havana, which Lindsay took part in between March and August 1762. But since Dido's baptism records do indicate that she was born in 1761, when Lindsay was in the West Indies, they now think it more likely that Mariah was a slave being transported in a Spanish galleon which Lindsay had captured at some other point. It's also unlikely that Mariah gave birth to Dido in England. Captain Lindsay returned to England in late 1763 or early 1764, where he was knighted, making him Sir John Lindsay. It's unknown whether Dido was with him on this journey, but the next time he arrived in London in 1765, after a return trip to the Caribbean, she was definitely in tow. When they arrived in England that time, he took her to Kenwood House, just outside the city, and entrusted her to the care of Lord Mansfield and his wife. Again, as was the case with Lady Elizabeth, it was not unheard of for a powerful family member to be the legal guardian to a relation born in unfortunate circumstances. But the fact that Dido was mixed race, probably appearing black, and probably born to an enslaved mother was very unusual. It's been speculated that the Mansfields took Belle in to be Elizabeth's playmate, and later in life would become her personal attendant. But as we will see, Dido's role within the household suggests that she became more of a true member of the family than a lady's maid. Sir John Lindsay, her father, would spend several more years crisscrossing the Atlantic between London and Jamaica, sowing his wild oats, so to speak, before eventually marrying his wife, Mary Milner. They would have no children together, but he fathered four additional children before marrying, all of whom were born out of wedlock to different women. Three of those four women were mixed race or black. To quickly go through those four additional children, there was first John Edward Lindsay, who was born and died in 1762. His mother, identified as Mary Vellet, was listed as a mulatto woman. Mulatto is an outdated term, we don't use it anymore, but it was used in these contemporary accounts to denote a person of mixed African and European ancestry. I will use it where it appears in primary sources, just as a heads up. Then there was a daughter, Anne Lindsay, born in 1766 to a Sarah Gladwell, who is identified as a, quote, free Negro. The date of Anne's death is unknown, but she doesn't appear to have lived long enough to be named in Sir John Lindsay's will, as is the case with his next two children. Those were Elizabeth Lindsay, born in Port Royal to a mother known only as Martha G., and John Lindsay, whose mother, Frances, is recorded as a, quote, free mulatto woman. I mention all of these names not because you'll need to know them for the story, but because it is remarkable that we know them at all, and that Lindsay seems not to have attempted to brush these children or their mothers under the rug. His first child, Dido, would be baptized as Dido Elizabeth Bell on November 20th, 1766, at St. George's in Bloomsbury. She was five years old. Her father was not present at the baptism, nor did he give her his family name of Lindsay. Dido would go on to have little contact with her father, as he was abroad for long periods of time. 
He married in 1768 and thereafter lived elsewhere in England and Scotland. And just as he had seen Dido well provided for, Lindsay also took care of her mother, the enslaved Mariah Bell. In 1773, Lindsay began a process to transfer a piece of property he owned in Pensacola, Florida to Mariah, with the requirement that she build a house and live there. At the time, Mariah was living in London, still in contact with Lindsay, but a year later, when the deal was finalized, she traveled solo to America. In the agreement, this is when she got the extra E added to the end of her name, and she was referred to as, quote, a Negro woman formerly of Pensacola and then residing in London, a four and made free. In the deed for her house, Lindsay had guaranteed Mariah her freedom. The price to confirm this freedom is referred to in a manumission transaction dated the 22nd of August, 1774, quote, for the sum of 200 Spanish milled dollars, paid by Mariah Bell, a Negro woman slave about 28 years of age. As we believe Dido was born in 1761, this would retroactively place Mariah at about 15 years old at the time of Dido's birth. We don't know the extent of her relationship with Lindsay, how long it lasted, and what the exact nature of it was, but the house that Mariah lived in was on the corner of Lindsay and Mansfield streets, in what was then a high-class area of Pensacola owned and controlled by the British. History makes no more mention of her after this point, but based on the quality of artifacts that were later found at an archaeological site at her home, she lived a comfortable life, even if she never saw her daughter again. Dido would, after all, grow up in Kenwood House, which was popular with visitors and sightseers due to its fashionable architecture, its location, and the top 1% of society that was entertained there. Therefore, Dido would grow up on a semi-public stage, not only because she grew up amidst the elites of her day, but also because of the Mansfield family's fame and influence. At the heart of that family was Dido's great-uncle, Lord Mansfield, who, aside from being an earl and owning Kenwood, was Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. This made him England's most powerful judge, and he would eventually preside over a number of court cases that examined the legality of the slave trade. In 1772, when Dido was 11 years old, Lord Mansfield's ruling in the case Somerset v. Stuart was interpreted by many to mean that slavery had no legal basis in England. It marked a significant milestone along the long road toward England's abolition of the slave trade in 1807. The case in question involved an escaped slave whose owner wanted to send him back to the West Indies for sale. A man named Charles Stewart had purchased an enslaved person in Boston and brought him to England, where he then escaped. The enslaved African man, James Somerset, was later caught and then forced onto a ship bound for Jamaica, where he would be sold to a plantation for labor. Somerset's owner argued that he could do with him exactly as he pleased, but witnesses and advocates for Somerset were shocked by his violent capture, and the public was horrified that a man's freedom could be thus denied on English soil. Lord Mansfield decreed in his ruling that the slave laws of the colonies were not binding in England because, in his view, quote, the state of slavery is of such a nature that is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, but only by positive law. It is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. 
Whatever inconveniences, therefore, may follow from a decision, I cannot say that this case is allowed or approved by the law of England, and therefore the black must be discharged. Again, this is not how I'm referring to the people in question, this is contemporary language. Mansfield's ruling implied that slavery had never been explicitly authorized by statute within England, and he found that it also did not exist in English common law. This was taken by abolitionists to mean that slavery was completely unlawful and was therefore abolished within England. Mansfield himself, however, also felt that the ruling was narrow enough that it should only apply to the specific enslaved person at issue. He offered no judgment on the point of abolition itself, saying only that this particular owner had no right to remove Somerset from England against his will. At the time, it was suggested that Mansfield's personal experience with raising Dido must have influenced his decision. Thomas Hutchinson, who you'll remember had once been governor of Massachusetts, later recalled that Mansfield, quote, knows he has been reproached for showing a fondness for Dido. A few years ago, there was a cause before his lordship brought by a black for recovery of his liberty. A Jamaica planter, being asked what judgment his lordship would give, answered, No doubt he will be set free, for Lord Mansfield keeps a black in his house, which governs him and the whole family. Evidently, there was affection. Some people thought there was too much between Dido and the Mansfield family, and this probably did influence Lord Mansfield's personal thoughts on slavery. As Lord Chief Justice, however, he was still shrewd enough, I think, to balance any such feelings against his careful reading of the law. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Dido's exact position within Lord Mansfield's house is still today a matter of debate. The available evidence suggests that she was brought up as an educated lady within the family, but with a lesser status than her cousin, Lady Elizabeth. Remember, apart from the, quote, issue of her race, Dido was illegitimate in a time and place when great social stigma usually accompanied that kind of status. It was very unusual at this time for a mixed-race child who had been born to a formerly enslaved mother to be raised not as a servant but as part of an aristocratic family. She occupied a strange neither upstairs nor below-stairs rank. Dido, as the daughter of a nobleman, was too well-born to belong to the servant class, but as a black illegitimate child, she was too other to be completely welcome in high society. She was apparently treated like the rest of the family when she was in company with only the family, but when the Mansfields were entertaining, she did not eat with their guests. We know this because Thomas Hutchinson described a 1779 encounter with the 18-year-old Dido in his journal, writing that, quote, a black came in after dinner and sat with the ladies, and after coffee walked with the company in the gardens, one of the young ladies having her arm within the other. This does suggest that Dido was quite at ease in the presence of invited guests, even if she refrained from formally engaging in their entertainment. 
She was raised to receive a young lady's education alongside Elizabeth through the mid-1780s. She was taught to read, write, play music, and practice social skills, and I think it's quite telling that her intelligence and adeptness are usually noted in the few additional references we have to her. The poet James Beatty's work, Elements of Moral Science, for example, refers to Dido's intelligence directly, saying, quote, a Negro girl about 10 years old who had been six years in England and not only spoke with the articulation and accent of a native, but repeated some pieces of poetry with a degree of elegance which would have been admired in any English child of her years. Following this is a footnote which states, she was in Lord Mansfield's family and at his desire and in his presence repeated those pieces of poetry to me. She was called Dido and I believe she is still alive. It is somewhat disheartening that Beatty is essentially writing that Dido was smart, all things considered, considering her situation, rather than just recognizing that she herself was accomplished and bright. But alas, that was the attitude of the day. Dido was able to put her intelligence to use, taking on several integral roles at Kenwood House. Thomas Hutchinson later recalled that she was called upon by my lord every minute for this thing and that, and showed the greatest attention to everything he said. She also supervised the dairy and the poultry yard on the estate. This type of activity, rather than being the purview of a servant as we might assume it is today, was actually quite common as a pastime for genteel ladies in the 1700s. More unusual, though, was Dido's work as an amanuensis for Lord Mansfield in his later years. She assisted him by taking dictation of his letters, which would normally have been done by a male secretary or a clerk. This reflected not only her education and abilities, but also the trust and regard in which she was held by her great uncle. I came across an example of a letter that she wrote out for him in 1760. No, I'm sorry, 1786. It shows Dido's handwriting to be beautiful and perfectly legible. So Mansfield's closing comment of that letter, which reads, this is written by Dido, I hope you will be able to read it, comes across as teasingly playful rather than a jab. In this secretarial position, Dido would have had access to her uncle's court cases, whether or not you believe she actually had influence on them. One of the most notorious of these cases, besides Somerset versus Stuart, was the Zhang insurance claim. In 1781, a slave ship bound for Jamaica threw 132 enslaved people overboard. The ship's owners claimed that the vessel had run out of water and that the crew had to sacrifice some slaves to save the 300 others on board. Now they wanted their insurers to reimburse them for the lost, quote, cargo. The insurance company rejected the claim and it found its way to Lord Mansfield's desk. He wrote that it is a very shocking case, and rightfully so, for the callous treatment of human life did truly appall English society. The legal question was whether the slaves had been killed out of necessity, or whether, as was suspected, they had caught some type of sickness during the journey, and therefore became worthless in the eyes of their captors. There was talk that the enslaved people had been murdered for the insurance payout, rather than the owners taking a loss on their sale. In the end, the owners couldn't prove the necessity of disposing of 132 human lives, and they dropped the claim. This episode forms a central part of the 2013 film Bell, which is how a lot of people were introduced to Dido's story. 
The inclusion of this insurance claim raises the question, how must Dido have felt, and Mansfield as well, knowing that her own mother had been a slave and that she too could have easily met the same fate as the victims in the Jean case? Sadly, we don't know the inner thoughts and morals of those closest to Dido, but there are other clues in the historical record that might reveal more about her position. In June 1788, Dido's father, Sir John Lindsay, died at age 51. Dido herself was 27 at this time. He was buried in Westminster Abbey, a testament to his long and illustrious naval career, which I have barely even touched on. Aside from naming his own accomplishments, Lindsay's obituary acknowledged that he was the father of Dido and described her as, quote, a mulatta who has been brought up in Lord Mansfield's family almost from her infancy, and whose amiable disposition and accomplishments have gained her the highest respect from all his lordship's relations and visitants. As I mentioned way back in the beginning of our story, Lindsay provided for two of his other illegitimate children in his will bequeathing a thousand pounds to be shared by, quote, John and Elizabeth Lindsay, my reputed son and daughter. It was until recently assumed that the Elizabeth referred to in this will was Dido, but we now know this to be incorrect. Sir John likely didn't mention Dido in this document because he knew she was being looked after by the Earl of Mansfield and his family. Dido did in fact receive an annual allowance from the Mansfields, of 30 pounds and 10 shillings, several times the annual wages of a domestic worker. This would come out to about 5,615 pounds or $7,675 today. If you got your allowance weekly, like I once did, that would come out to about $148 a week. And for the record, I got $5 a week pretty much until I got my first real job. By contrast, Dido's cousin Lady Elizabeth received about £100 annually, but remember that she was also a direct beneficiary of Lord Mansfield's fortune in her own right, as her father was his heir. There are also records of household purchases made for Dido, including a luxurious chintz bed cover and expensive ass's milk to be used as a health tonic. And every year on her birthday, there was a record of a gift of about five pounds, or if I've done my math right, about 920 pounds or $1,200 today. The author Paula Byrne notes that these aspects of Dido's life, where no expense was spared for her material comforts, are further evidence of her position as Lady Elizabeth's equal at Kenwood House. Elizabeth did leave Kenwood upon her marriage in 1785, but Dido remained with Lord Mansfield, who by this time was a widower. Elizabeth had married a George Finch Hatton that December, and they went on to have three children together. Again, so tragically, we don't know much about her life beyond her marriage. She lived until 1825. It wouldn't be until Lord Mansfield's death that Dido herself would leave Kenwood. He passed in 1793 at age 87, and Dido married five months later. This sequencing of events could be because it was really only Lord Mansfield's will that allowed Dido to finally be considered a free woman. Remember, she had been born into slavery, and none of her great-uncle's court rulings had any effect on the legal status of enslaved persons living in England, except in very specific circumstances. Mansfield left Dido 500 pounds in his will, 
which was considerably less than he left to Elizabeth, who received about £10,000. That's about £1.5 million or $2 million today. Compare that to Dido's share of about £77,000 or $100,000. Lord Mansfield had actually, in his own words, increased Dido's bequest himself, considering how she had been bred and how she has behaved. So that's great, I guess. Again, Dido's African origins may have played a part in the disparity, yet it was also pretty common to treat illegitimate children as a, quote, lesser relation. Another likely reason is that Lady Elizabeth's father would become the second Earl of Mansfield, inheriting her uncle's title and still more of his fortune. Have to keep that money in the family. Nevertheless, Dido's bequest from Lord Mansfield probably helped her set up a home with her new husband, a French man named John de Vinier. De Vinier probably worked as a gentleman's steward or a valet. They were married on the 5th of December in 1793 at St. George's in Hanover Square, when Dido was 32 years old. Her new husband had been born in the Normandy region of France in 1768, so he was several years younger than her. He had left France for England toward the end of the 1780s, just before the French Revolution. We covered that a bit in our last episode. Dido and John had at least three sons together, Charles born in 1795 and William Thomas born in 1800. Both survived into adulthood. Their third son, John, who we know survived until about 1804, then seems to have completely vanished from history, possibly dying of a childhood illness. Their sons were educated, as confirmed by a letter written by one of their tutors. They would have been taught English, Greek, Latin, and French, along with subjects like accounting, land surveying, mathematics, and drawing. Basically, these were all useful skills that they would need in order to get a job in the military, in banking, or to go on to study at university. William and Charles were both later employed by the East India Company. Ironically, William was in England, and Charles was across the globe in India. Dido's line continued through her sons, with her last known descendant, a great-great-grandson named Harold de Vinier, leaving no heirs when he died in South Africa in 1975. Dido Elizabeth Bell died in 1804 at the relatively young age of 43, and she was buried at St. George's Fields in Westminster. In the 1970s, the site of her burial was redeveloped, some of it into housing, and it is believed that Dido's remains were moved during the development, but no conclusive evidence exists to tell us whether this is the case or where they were moved to. Some people think that since the whole site wasn't redeveloped, it's possible that her remains might still be there. After her death, Dido faded into relative obscurity, until, that is, the mid-1990s, when there was renewed interest in the double portrait, showing her and her cousin. Commissioned in the mid-1770s by Lord Mansfield, that painting was for a long time only identified as Lady Elizabeth Murray. But I like to think that the Earl was being rather intentional in having his two great nieces sit together for a portrait. As we discussed early on, they are depicted as equals in many ways, with the only differences between them being the tone of their skin and perhaps some indicators of personality. Dido's more exotic clothing, namely the shawl, the turban, and the ostrich feather, rather than denoting her outsider status, were actually fashionable and a bit ahead of their time. 
ostrich feathers were just beginning to become fashionable hair accessories for ladies, with the Duchess of Devonshire sporting them in her towering hairstyles. And turbans would come into the fashion lexicon about a decade or two later, closer to the Regency era. While researching, I found an interesting tidbit of information which suggests that Dido's turban in the painting might have also been a nod to her father. When John Lindsay was knighted in 1771, he had been presented with a, quote, very rich dress of gold brocade, made after the European manner with the star upon the left breast. He also received an engraved ring and a turban. These were gifts from Nawab Muhammad Ali Khan Walaja, a ruler of the Carnatic region of South India. It's possible that Dido is wearing that same turban or one worn in homage to her father, dressed up with a feather to make it a bit more fashionable. The painting was at one time, like we said, only identified as the Lady Elizabeth Murray. Her companion was unnamed and unknown. That changed in the 90s when a visitor to Scone Palace in Scotland, where the painting is housed, identified the previously unknown Dido by name. They had heard of her somewhat serendipitously, because at the same time, a historian named Margot Stringfield was part of a team of University of West Florida archaeologists who were conducting the first excavation of Mariah Bell's Pensacola property. In that research, Stringfield found the contract conveying the plot of land from Sir John Lindsay to Mariah in 1773, and from there, researchers were able to follow Dido's path from the West Indies to upper-class English society. This groundbreaking research led, naturally, to renewed interest in the portrait, now that there was a name to attribute to the second sitter. The painting came full circle in 2007 when it was exhibited at Kenwood House, where it had been painted, together with more information about Dido than had ever been compiled before. This was also part of a larger exhibition marking the 200th anniversary of the Abolition of the Slave Trade Act of 1807. The current Lady Mansfield has described her family's feelings towards the painting by saying that they are extremely proud of it and what it represents. She says that if there was a fire, this is the piece that she would run into her home to retrieve. Lady Mansfield's feelings toward the portrait and the renewed public interest in Dido led it to be investigated further in the past few years. The painting was formerly attributed to the German neoclassical painter Johann Zofani, Zofani? but following research by the BBC TV program Fake or Fortune, the painting has now been verified by the Scottish National Gallery as a painting in the Zofani style by the Scottish portraitist David Martin. Martin was known to the Mansfield family, and he had also painted a full-length portrait of Lord Mansfield before painting the double portrait. Clips from Fake or Fortune are available online if you want to see Lady Mansfield talk about the painting a little more. The painting itself does leave a lot to the imagination, and I'm afraid that there will always be unanswered questions about Dido's life. But at the same time, we are so lucky to have what few snippets of information do exist, and historians, I'm happy to say, are still actively researching her. There's a blog called All Things Georgian, which for a while was posting updates whenever something new came out about Dido. Their last update was just this past July, so that's really encouraging if you, like me, hope that there is still more to be discovered about this fascinating woman's life. Thank you for coming with me on that rather roundabout, pieced-together look at the life of a mixed-race woman in 18th century England. 
If you want another picture of what Dido's life might have been like, you can check out that 2013 film called Belle, B-E-L-L-E. It's a beautiful period piece, just be aware that a lot of it relies on imagined details, and in some cases they've changed aspects of her story completely to make it more, I don't know, big screen ready. And with those recommendations, I will leave you. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or comments about this week's episode, I would love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at artofhistorypodcast or on Twitter at arthistoricpod. Currently, I am still working on a bi-weekly schedule for this show, so the next episode will be in about two weeks. But I do continue to make almost daily royal history videos on TikTok at Matta of Fact. That's Matta, M-A-T-T-A, underscore of, underscore fact. Also, if you have any recommendations or suggestions on pieces you would like me to cover in the future, feel free to send those my way as well. I do have a long list of subjects, but I'm always interested to see what other people have questions about. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.